The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. just want to reflect some with you uh, today on a subject that I think probably ought to be a course here. And um, I want you to look at Acts 18. Acts 18. Um, it's, hard to, it's hard to teach on narratives in chapel because you're so limited in terms of your time. And I've tended to refrain from it, but just think this is a great passage here. Acts 18. And I want to read all the verses, but uh, let me preface it by saying this. I think most of the classes that, that you all take around here are designed to make you successful in ministry. You know, adequate exegetes, able orators, um, people who are able to always give the reason for the hope that is in you, always successful in your ministry. And yet when I read the Bible, I see it just chalked full of miserable failures. And um, probably ought to be a course here that just takes all those passages and, and looks at them one by one. Because uh, one of the things that's inevitable in ministry, along hopefully with many successes, is just the, the struggle of disappointment, of failure. And uh, you see Paul uh, in the midst of some of that in Acts 18. Um, you find Paul here on the end of the tail end of his second missionary journey. If you've had Acts and Paul, you know all that. But uh, let me read it. I'm just going to point out a couple of things for our um, hopefully uh, help this morning. Um, Acts 18 says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, "'Your blood be on your heads.'" I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. It was a typical experience for Paul to, re, uh, to uh, uh, encounter Jewish opposition. And this is a, a break as he moves uh, exclusively to ministering to Gentiles. It goes on to say, Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who feared who heard him believed and were baptized. Uh, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. 
Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the crowd. But Gallio showed no concern, whatever. Um, just an interesting bit of narrative here. The, the nice thing about narrative is uh, you, you get into kind of the, what seem to be inconsequential details. It's, it's uh, refreshing, though, because it's in these inconsequential, inconsequential details that you see really the reality of the push and pull of life, uh, the push and pull of, of ministry. Uh, it's one of the rich things, I think, that uh, we have in the Old Testament, and you have these wonderful narratives in the New Testament. But you, you find Paul here in Acts 18 on the tail end of uh, his second missionary journey. He begins his third missionary journey um, a little bit further down uh, in chapter 18. But if you're not aware of the context of Acts 18, you might miss some of the, the stressors and the difficulties and discouragement that, uh, that Paul has experienced. I mean, think about, first of all, where Paul has been. We don't have time to read chapters 15 th or 13 through um, uh, 15, <clears throat> or I'm sorry, 13 through 17, which uh, give us an account of the first and second missionary journeys. But uh, here's some of the things that Paul has experienced over those uh, two missionary journeys. Paul and Barnabas on one occasion are stoned in Lystra. Uh, Paul is flogged in Philippi. Uh, Paul and Silas have been thrown into prison. Along the way, Paul is dealing with these constant agitators in Judaism. And uh, on top of that, you see Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, all believers kind of experiencing troubles in their own relationships, experiencing the fallout of Christian brothers, not being able to, to get along. And uh, you look at Paul's time in Athens, and at best, the results were meager. Um, and here you find um, Paul leaving by himself in verse 1 to go to Corinth. And what you find about this is that Paul's leaving for Corinth. He, he has no funds. He's not being underwritten by anybody to go to Corinth. So he's got to work part-time during the week. He's going by himself. And when he goes to Corinth, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul saying this, I came to Corinth in weakness and fear and trembling. Um, interesting, the way Paul is approaching Corinth. Not this hero, missionary that we often envision. He's, he's full of fear and weakness and trembling. Why? Because Corinth was a, a very big, immoral, cosmopolitan city, and there would be lots of reasons to be fearful. Um, not simply given what he's already been through. And then look what happens when he gets to Corinth in verse 6. Again, this ongoing rejection of Jewish leaders. And I think what you see here, what begins to come out of this narrative, particularly as you relate it to Paul's experience in Corinth, is you see while there are 
incredible and great times of success in ministry and serving others, there are equally times of failure and discouragement. I mean, I can look over my years in ministry, and there, there are many marriages and individuals that I've seen move down the path of growth and grace, and yet there have been many that I've seen move down a different path. Um, people that hailed my ministry to them just within a month from that moment that they hail my ministry to them are saying that I haven't served them enough. I haven't done enough for them. They're criticizing me. And uh, you see this over and over again. Failure, disappointment, the person that you've been working with relapses. He accuses you, she accuses you of not caring. Um, the church plant that goes belly up in the first month or two that you had spent two or three years organizing and raising hundreds and thousands of dollars of support to, to underwrite. The ministry initiative that, that sinks and just the ongoing service of other sinners and the, the push and pull, the success and failure that, uh, that happens in the reality of, of ministry. Um, what's, what's, if that's not application enough, what's some of the application we can take from this? I think, first of all, to be careful that we don't make the mistake to think that it's only in the successful moments of ministry that growth happens. Uh, that's often the mistake that we make. And uh, we, we only see the seasons of fruitfulness as times when God is at work in us and making us grow. I mean, Paul didn't have that view of ministry. He said in, in Philippians, didn't he, that I've learned to be content in all kinds of circumstances, not just those circumstances where there's great success, but I've learned to be content in those circumstances where there's been great, great suffering and failure. I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance. Uh, you know, think about it just uh, metaphorically as you look at the trees outside. You would, you would tend to think, particularly as the seasons change, as the leaves begin to fall off the trees, you would tend to think that this is a time when trees don't grow, right? Uh, the cold, harsh, bleak winter winds and cold are times when trees don't grow. And yet, if you were uh, uh, more of a, is it a botanist that studies trees and plants? Thank you. Um, I'm out of my league, see? Uh, you know, what would a botanist say? They would say it's in those bleak, harsh winters that that tree, while on the outside, looks like it's dying, is at that very moment sinking its roots deeper into the soil so that it can begin to sustain the weight of the springtime uh, flourishing of leaves and, and harvest. It's, it's oftentimes, isn't it, in the lowest moments of ministry where God is, is most at work. Uh, this, this may sound a little trivial, but I remember Tim Keller, he was a professor here when I was in seminary almost 20 years ago, and uh, he said this in one of our first classes. He said, you know, one of the best things that could happen to all of you this semester, and this is after we had just come through summer Greek, you know, making A's because all we had is one course. He said, the best thing that could happen to you this fall semester is you get an F. And, you know, only people in the practical theology department can get away with saying something like that. But what was he saying? He said, you know, you're here and you're thinking that the only way that you're going to 
grow and be a successful person in ministry is to score the highest grades. And Tim was saying, no, there, there may be something that you need to learn by making a failing grade. Uh, that may be a great moment of growth. Uh, I thankfully waited until my last year to do that, but uh, did it nonetheless. And um, can't tell you it was a pleasant experience, but uh, it was at the hands of Dr. Bruce Walkie that uh, that happened when we were taking intermediate Hebrew. About a third of the class, by the way. So I wasn't alone. He was, he was teaching Old Testament Hebrew to MDiv students at a PhD level. And he was wondering why a third of us couldn't, you know, stay on board. But what's the point? You know, it's these moments where we struggle, where we experience loss, where we experience failure. Growth is happening there. Um, remember uh, just, I think it was a week or two ago in, in Doug Green's inaugural address, he talked about the Psalms and it was, it was striking to me to hear Doug talk about how you could categorize almost half of the Psalms, either uh, individual or corporate laments. And what Doug brought out of that is that the Christian life, a life of godliness, oftentimes is a lamentable life. Um, it's, it's a difficult life. And yet, isn't it true, if you look at redemptive history, what looks like to be the most despairing, lowest moment in redemptive history, Jesus dying on the cross, that is, in fact, isn't it, the place where God is most present and most at work. And I think we see that in this passage. Let me just point you to another thing. There's this reality of discouragement and difficulty in ministry, and uh, it helps to just be upfront about that and realize that and, and to see those times as opportunities for growth. But look what happens in the midst of this struggle with despair and discouragement. Paul gets counseling. He goes to counseling. In fact, the counseling comes to him, and the counselor is none other than Jesus himself. At, look, what, uh, look what Jesus says to him in verses 9 and 10. Uh, he says, in the midst of this discouragement, the Lord spoke to Paul, and he basically says three things. He says, first of all, Paul, I want you to keep doing something. Keep on speaking. That's the first thing you see there. Keep on doing what you're doing. Don't be afraid. Keep on at what you're doing. Don't be silent. But what's interesting here is you don't have Jesus giving kind of sheer behavioristic counsel. He says, keep on doing the things that you need to do. Continue to be obedient. But he grounds that obedience in two promises that just ring throughout all of Scripture. Look what it says here. He says, keep on doing this, what you're doing. Keep on speaking. Don't be afraid. And then here are the reasons. For, verse 10, that is, for this reason, Paul, for I am with you. There's that, there's that great reminder of God's covenant faithfulness. I'm with you. I'm with you, Paul. That's one promise. Meditate on the fact that I'm with you. Uh, no one is going to harm you. Even if bodily harm comes your way, ultimately, you are not touched by that great enemy death itself. And not only remember something, remember that I am with you. I want you to see something, Paul. I want you to see that. Look at what he says here. I have many people in this city. He says, Paul, as you move into this very scary city, I want you to realize that there are future brothers and sisters in Christ among them. And I want you to see that and move into the city for that reason. 
Um, what is Jesus saying here? He's, he's not really saying anything new. Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, you would think he would come up with something new to encourage Paul. This is just a litany that you find all throughout the Old Testament. Fear not, I am with you. Fear not, I am with you. Fear not, I am with you. How many times do you read that? And you get to the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Fear not, for I am with you. 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 I mean, is, is that phrase resounding in your heart and mind? I mean, it's got to when you experience struggle and difficulty. Fear not, for I am with you. And, you know, we have the great advantage that the Old Testament folks didn't have. Paul had it, we have it. We know fear not for I am with you is real because we have this privilege of looking back at what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Fear not for I am with you. Fear not for I am with you. I'm committed to you. Uh, I remember, I think it may have been a book by Philip Yancey. He said, I couldn't continue to be a Christian if it weren't for the cross. I couldn't continue to live the Christian life were it not for the cross. Fear not, for I am with you. And then, if that weren't enough, you see just a litany of encouraging things, and I'll just finish with this. Look at what else is going on. Um, And I think this is important to see because fear oftentimes blinds us to all the good things that God is doing around us. Uh, We're so... Uh, turned in on ourselves, we become so myopic, and our vision gets blurred to all the good things that are happening around us. And look at how God in his, in his grace not only comes to Paul and, and promises and reminds him that he's with him, look at all the good things that are happening. Just, I'll mention them. Verse 2, you've got Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, they were forced out of Rome, but connected with Paul And they become very uh, close friends of Paul as they work together in Corinth and Ephesus. And and God then also uses Priscilla and Aquila to instruct Apollos. That is another person that shows up on the scene. Verse 5, Silas and Timothy are nearby. They bring financial help from Philippi and Thessalonica, as well as aid uh, Paul in the ministry so that he can devote his entire week to preaching and equipping and not just... uh, short seasons of time. Verses 7 and 8, the Gentiles and Jews are being converted. There are good things happening. Uh, Titius Justus, a Gentile as well as a significant leader in the synagogue uh, called Crispus and his entire family believed in Jesus. And it also says that many Corinthians believed. So there are these wonderful reminders of God's work. Verses 12 through 17, God even uses the civil authorities to restrain the persecution against Paul. These ungodly civil authorities, uh, through their leadership, the leadership particularly of Gallio, God in his common grace restrains evil so that the gospel can be preached. Uh, Verses 24 through 28, God is raising up new leaders like Apollos and others to teach and train and equip the flock. So you see in the midst of, of this passage, the reality of discouragement and yet the encouragement of the gospel and the encouragement of God's good work that is going on all around Paul. Both the gospel and God's good work that is going all around Paul could, 
could be easily overlooked because, because of this fear spiral that Paul could have gone in, and yet look where it moves him. Um, let me just say, how do you face the highs and lows of ministry? How do you face the lows of ministry? You expect the highs and lows, and you expect the lows. You expect the failures, the discouragements, the people that turn on you. Uh, you remember the gospel, and you want to be a scavenger for God's good work that's happening all around you in people's lives, even in the midst of discouragement. Uh, that, that's, that's something, I think, of, of the lesson that we take away here as we look at someone who is very much like us, the Apostle Paul, uh, flesh and blood. I would, I would encourage you, um, maybe in light of this, we have uh, the summer issue, issue of the Journal of Biblical Counseling. A friend of mine has written a, an article called uh, Everyday Life of a Pastor, Reasons to Persevere. You may want to pick that up. It, it's, it's really a, an autobiographical sketch of some devastating things that happened to him at the hands of people in his church and ministry and how the gospel and how God's good work and others around him can uh, enabled him to persevere in ministry. So, just commend that to you for your reading. Let me uh, let me pray as we close. Father, we um, we always sit on the edge of success or failure, and yet, thankfully, as we sit on the edge of success or failure, uh, we sit on that edge in the palm of your hand that you keep us and care for us and I pray for myself for Jerry for the professors that are here for the students as we think about a real life lived uh, with you in ministry in the context of our marriages and our families and our friendships that Lord we would find you in those seasons of lament we would find you to be our faithful covenant-keeping God that we would see the gospel, that we would remember Christ, Christ crucified and raised, Christ uh, coming again, and that that would sustain us, that would give us hope, even in the midst of the discouragement. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.